Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we consider what is in part an addendum to the first contemplation on the self-help catastrophe. But this addendum is also its own contemplation because we're going to consider some important topics like spiritual materialism and systemic incoherence, technical sounding terms, but it'll all become clear. In some ways, this is just another installment in the series of contemplations that we will do in order to try and understand the self-help catastrophe and find concrete ways out of it. We should perhaps begin by noting that the self-help catastrophe wouldn't really be catastrophic if it weren't creating catastrophic effects. If we understand one of the catastrophic effects of self-help is that we can't travel anymore or that travel should be greatly restricted because all our traveling has too big a negative impact on other humans and on the world, then that's just where we find ourselves. It's not that I wish it were this way, or that I think travel is inherently evil. It's that travel has become increasingly unethical, at least in part because of the self-help industry. That's not an easy thing to contemplate for those of us who enjoy travel and also for those of us who might travel because of the work we do. In terms of self-help traveling in particular, we can recall that there is a long and venerable tradition of pilgrimage as part of spiritual development. But we have turned this spiritual kind of pilgrimage into spiritual materialism on steroids. It's one thing to walk around India seeking teachers. It's another thing to fly all over Southeast Asia when you live in Manhattan. For those who aren't familiar with the concept of spiritual materialism, we should take a moment to define it. Any concept, any religion, any philosophy, any politics, any ideal or practice at all can become a means for perpetuating and even deepening structures of bondage and oppression, both inside of us and outside of us, rather than liberating us. So even if an idea or practice was specifically developed to help heal and liberate, it can still be used in a way that creates more harm and more bondage. That is the essence of spiritual materialism, and no idea or practice is totally immune to it. We can think of some easy examples of spiritual materialism, such as the Christian rationalization for the Crusades, or the Christian rationalization for genocide in the New World, or the way Stalin used Marxist philosophy to rationalize oppression, violence, and even genocide. The list goes on and on, and the so-called Western democracies have even used the concept of democracy itself to rationalize violence and various forms of unethical behavior and subtle forms of oppression. 
But again, no concept is immune to spiritual materialism, and plenty of nonviolent traditions have fallen into various forms of it, both violent and nonviolent. One form of spiritual materialism that, on the surface of it, often seems nonviolent is spiritual bypassing. Spiritual bypassing is a special case of spiritual materialism. It's one in which we throw ourselves deeper and deeper into spiritual practice as a way to avoid developmental tasks we really need to address, like maturing emotionally or having a healthy sense of self before we engage in self-transcendence. Now, we can even use spiritual practice to avoid self-transcendence, seeking experiences that seem powerful, but which the ego nevertheless manages to control. There are actually countless varieties of spiritual materialism. They are as varied as the creativity of our own ego and our own culture, but they all share the basic characteristic that somehow or other we are actively employing philosophical ideas and practices to perpetuate and even deepen the bondage and suffering inside of us and outside of us rather than using those philosophical concepts and practices to liberate, to heal, to cut through bondage and oppression. The relationship between spiritual materialism and self-help is not always easy to sense. Now, in part because spiritual materialism has an unconscious current to it, but also because self-help often takes its core notions from a variety of philosophies, religions, and wisdom traditions without actually acknowledging the original source or giving sufficient framework for understanding how these notions are seen in their traditions of origin. Now, sometimes it seems as though the self-help teacher doesn't really have any idea where they got some of their core concepts. They may even mistakenly think those concepts are their own original insights, or they may think that they don't need to discuss the specific traditions of practice that those ideas come from. Now, in one way or another, what tends to happen is that a variety of philosophical fragments, fragmented insights, fragments of wisdom, are applied to the self-help agenda. Now, that is a key part of the catastrophe. In general, there is a tension in all spiritual traditions between our personal agendas and what those traditions demand. Spiritual practice is not about indulging the preferences of our ego and its agendas, no matter how nice those agendas may sound. And so the key link here is that we get concepts and practices from the self-help literature, from the self-help teachers. They are fragments of wisdom. They're fragmented in part because we don't have this fuller context. And they are fragmenting because we then apply them to our personal agendas, which the traditions of their origin would have told us our intention with the very concepts we're trying to apply. So there's a real irony and tension and disorder in the way we tend to work with a lot of these concepts. In a basic way, we seem to face a need to recognize that 
part of our reactiveness when we specifically hear that traveling, as an example, might be problematic, goes altogether with the ego's agendas and a certain kind of self-help mindset. What self-help generally tells us, and what our ego wants to hear, and what the culture, in fact, wants to hear, is that we can have whatever we want, and there is no limit to abundance. This is at the heart of a lot of self-help. And so we say, hey, I want to go to Angkor Wat. I want to go to Machu Picchu. I want a new car and a gold watch. Self-help becomes the empowerment of our personal agendas and not the empowerment of wisdom, love, and beauty. Not the true empowerment of the communities, ecologies, and mysteries upon which our lives depend. We certainly may rationalize that we aren't materialistic at all and that we only want to travel for personal growth. And we want the gold watch because we want to tell time using a watch instead of our phone. And the gold watch is very durable and well-made. But the term spiritual materialism in part indicates a tendency to pretend not to be materialistic and yet to behave materialistically anyway. In other words, that's how it functions. We turn something spiritual or educational into a materialistic thing. And this often happens unconsciously, which is why it's so insidious. We need to keep in mind something very, very important, and that is our rationalizations only work when they sound cogent and compelling. In other words, our rationalizations have to seem to us and to those around us like reasons, not rationalizations. I mean, if they start to sound like rationalizations, they begin to lose their capacity to function, and we come up with better ones. Now, at times, we know to some degree or other that we're rationalizing, but even then, the ego can manage to maintain control, and we basically shrug our shoulders and do the thing that part of us wants to do. That can actually lead to tragic unethical consequences. Again, there's that wonderful line from Hannah Arendt where she talks about how the the horrors of the Nazi regime happened, and she said, well, basically, there were people who sort of thought to themselves, I shouldn't do this, but they did it anyway. While there were other people who said, I just can't, I won't. And so we do sometimes get hooked by a part of us. And the great irony is that in so many of these moments, we are identifying with a very small part of us. In the case of travel, it's as if we think we need to travel. As if we won't be complete or happy enough. As if our lives where we live them aren't enough for us. As if the land where we should be rooting ourselves, isn't alive enough for us. All sorts of egoic thoughts poke at us, and we somehow identify with a need to travel, with a fear of missing out on something. Even though our true nature is right where we stand, 
and flying to Paris is not likely to reveal it to us. Meanwhile, the landscape where we live cries out for our attention, cries out for our rootedness in it and our sense of how we are interwoven with it. That we often tend to miss. Even if we seem to really appreciate the place where we live, we're not necessarily rooted there and intimate with it. There is another strange sort of issue here. We could say something like this. I want to go to Patagonia because I want to expand my horizons and experience a new culture, a new place, a new people, a new landscape. And we could say all sorts of things to rationalize that trip. But if we think about it carefully, with a little bit of nuance and mindfulness, we might sense that in an important respect, that's quite similar to saying, well, I want to sleep with this person because I want to have a real connection with them. But then not waiting to find out if that person truly gives their consent. Sleeping with someone is not inherently evil, but it does require mutual consent. What we're trying to get out here is that the world itself has a say in our travel. And that means other cultures, other places, other people, other beings have a say too. But we effectively behave as if the world and other cultures have no say. If we take a look at some of the indicators of ecological health of the planet, if we take a look at levels of pollution and consequences of the use of fossil fuels, consequences of billions of travel trips taken, we might start to suspect that the world is giving us indications that it's not consenting anymore. My friends in academic philosophy will likely ask how the world can give its consent. Really, how can the world effectively speak with us? Because they assume, as I think a lot of us might, that the world cannot speak. And this seems to be symptomatic of our problem, symptomatic of the general cultural problem and the problem of the self-help catastrophe. We speak of self-help, and in this we leave no way for the world to dialogue with us and to enter into our healing in a gesture of mutuality, a gesture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Now, sometimes certain self-help approaches seem to make gestures for this, but it's not clear that we're really doing everything that we need to do to listen to the world, to listen to guidance from a larger place than the framework of our own agenda. In our culture, as a general way, there isn't an understanding of how the world might dialogue with us and how we might be guided by the world in a process of mutual healing, mutual helping, and mutual purpose. Now, that last part is really significant because it might mean an openness to letting go of the conscious human purposes and agendas that right now we're still attached to. 
Right now, a lot of self-help, both personal and in the business world, is directed at facilitating already existing agendas in one way or another. But helping ourselves can only happen in the context of helping the world and allowing the world to help us in a way that might go against agendas we right now hold precious. Can we turn toward a very vulnerable reflection on why we travel and what the consequences of travel really are right now in the world we share? Why do we think we need to travel in the first place? Can we look under the rationalizations and sense in the soul and the proprioception of the soul what drives us to want to do it? What are the real costs? What are our real motives and how do they relate to those costs? Should we radically reduce air travel and long-distance travel by car? Now, these are just some of the questions that we probably should be asking and which we don't, in general, face with enough honesty and careful reflection. Some of you may have heard about a recent letter signed by 11,000 scientists. They warn of, quote, untold suffering, end quote, if we do not change our ways. Should the risk of untold suffering make us put our travel plans on hold? Now, many of us may say, hey, my job depends on travel. A lot of people need to travel for work. Should we expect them all to just quit their jobs? But this, too, is part of the catastrophe. We have gotten ourselves embedded further and further into a system that is incoherent at its core. And this involves doing things that are unethical. Imagine someone saying to us 200 years ago, My livelihood depends on slavery, as does the livelihood of many others. Do you expect us all to just give that up? Well, what's the answer? Should we expect people to do the right thing, even if it seems to their ego to be a difficult thing to do? Ren Hurst gave up riding horses because she realized that riding horses probably causes harm to them and typically offers no genuine benefit. Now, this, too, is a tremendously tricky subject. And people in the horse world will be as reactive about this as people who love traveling are about traveling, but there are a lot of people who don't ride horses and who might be able to think about this clearly as a kind of analog. Ren Hurst made her living by riding horses and training horses to be ridden. That was her whole livelihood. When she now explains why she gave up riding, people will sometimes say to her, do you know how many people would be out of jobs if everyone stopped riding? But is that really a legitimate question if the horses are being hurt by riding? 
I myself am open to the possibility that writing could be done in an ethical way. But the majority, the vast majority of what I have seen in the horse world is centered on human agendas that are highly rationalized. Some of those agendas are very sophisticated, but they are still human agendas. I have seen many horses who show in their eyes a range of expressions from checked out to tortured and terrified when it comes to riding. It may be that a good number of horses who seem to enjoy riding have something akin to Stockholm Syndrome or some variety of learned helplessness. Perhaps someone will find a way that we can ride horses in a truly ethical manner, but Renhurst herself says she doesn't know of any such way. And so she found a different path for an ethical livelihood in which horses remain an integral part of her life. If we find out that our jobs and the way we organize society are causing harms to ourselves and others, then we have to reorganize our lives, not double down on that. We need to get rid of all the stupid jobs that we have, and a lot of the jobs that are causing harm are jobs that are unnecessary, especially in a well-organized society. It could be that we could organize society such that there aren't meaningless jobs and there aren't jobs that cause the kinds of harms that the jobs in our culture cause. Now, we have to do this together. No individual can do it alone. That's part of what seems to be holding us back. But at the same time, each of us is nevertheless responsible for hearing this warning that untold suffering is in store for us and that real suffering is occurring every day because of the need to reorganize how we live. Central to the self-help catastrophe is that self-help in general doesn't focus on reorganizing our society and revitalizing our culture so that it becomes more ethical and more coherent. We need a regenerative economy, not words about it, not high-minded cheers for it, but something that functions. And there are people already working toward it in concrete ways. We can connect with those people. We can join them in mutual support, mutual illumination, and mutual liberation and healing. Let's go back to those scientists again. In their letter, the scientists write the following, quote, Scientists have a moral obligation to clearly warn humanity of any catastrophic threat and to tell it like it is. On the basis of this obligation and the graphical indicators presented below, we declare with more than 11,000 scientist signatories from around the world, clearly and unequivocally that planet Earth is facing a climate emergency. Despite 40 years of global climate negotiations, with few exceptions, we have generally conducted 
business as usual and have largely failed to address this predicament. End quote. What is business as usual? Well, it certainly includes air travel, which the scientists specifically cite. Let's contemplate the fuller passage in which air travel is mentioned. Quote, Most public discussions on climate change are based on global surface temperature only. An inadequate measure to capture the breadth of human activities and the real dangers stemming from a warming planet. The climate crisis is closely linked to excessive consumption of the wealthy lifestyle. The most affluent countries are mainly responsible for the historical greenhouse gas emissions and generally have the greatest per capita emissions. Profoundly troubling signs from human activities include sustained increases in both human and ruminant livestock populations, per capita meat production, world gross domestic product, global tree cover loss, fossil fuel consumption, and the number of air passengers carried. End quote. Tourism is, in fact, growing faster than predicted, which is why it is one of the profoundly troubling signs that we are not doing what we need to do to heal ourselves and the world. International tourist arrivals have exploded from a little less than 70 million back in 1960, already a big number, to 1.4 billion today. Budget airlines alone have seduced us into 1 billion flights. Sadly, we've gotten a little numb to large numbers. 1 billion flights in a fossil fuel economy should probably strike us with a kind of horror. In the face of such numbers, we seem to need to ask ourselves, do we want to heal or not? Do we want real happiness and liberation or not? If we want those things, Who's going to stop traveling? Other people? Someone else but not me because I have a yoga retreat in Patagonia or because I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro? Again, I enjoy travel, the travel that I've done in the past, and it would be nice to go to a lot of places. There are a lot of wonderful places in the world that I could see being a fulfilling experience if I could go and and visit them. But air travel is just karmically laden at this point. It's heavy. Every time we fly on a plane, beings will suffer, both human and non-human. There is no karma-free air travel. 
It's why Greta Thunberg took a sailboat to New York and back to Europe recently. Now, I could actually see making an air travel exception for someone like that, but she chose to sail, and wisely so. Maybe indigenous elders can fly. Maybe people who are flying in order to radically transform the culture of conquest and consumption should have permission to fly and probably free of charge. Now, we're not talking about innovators or so-called thought leaders here, but real revolutionaries, the kinds of people who present serious challenges to the system as a whole. The rest of us might need to look mindfully and holistically at every single decision to get on a plane or make a long-distance trip in a car. If we reflect carefully, I think we may find that self-help, in many cases, is not likely a good enough excuse. But it's an even worse excuse if self-help made us some money that we then transform into increased degradation of ecologies and increased suffering for sentient beings. Or if self-help got us into a way of living that now inherently involves more travel. Self-help that inherently involves a lot of travel is possibly a contradiction in terms. Now, this is, again, not to say that we shouldn't go and work with teachers. It's not to say that there is no reason to ever try and engage in what could be considered self-help and to go outside of our local community because the teacher or the experience that really might make a difference for us just doesn't happen to be within walking distance. But can we find something more local? Can we find something that we could go to by train or that would just only be a couple of hours by car? Is there some way or other that we can minimize what we're doing? And can we in particular look for the kinds of self-help that are inviting us to disrupt the system as a whole, to enter into a regenerative culture? Again, not self-help that wants us to start a new company, but self-help that wants us to found a new culture. The basic idea here is that in one way or another, we often try to help ourselves in ways that degrade ecologies. And we often try to entertain ourselves and reward ourselves for successfully helping ourselves by means of degrading ecology. And we can't keep it up. We're talking about a basic symptom of conquest consciousness. So this is all integral to the issues the other contemplations are trying to get at. Self-help is typically caught up in limited and limiting notions, caught up in a web of dualistic thinking, cut off from the living web of life, and lacking a sense of proper limit that in turn comes from an intimacy with the sacredness of life, or at least some degree of intimacy 
with the system dynamics that govern life. Maybe it's somehow important for us to ruin the planet. And maybe if we ruin the planet, we will get carried into some great transformation otherwise unrealizable. Or maybe we'll discover unobtainium or some other techno-magic, and all travel will suddenly be free from karmic consequences. As it stands, even the sheer number of people going to places they do not live degrades those places and in some sense degrades those travelers. There are major issues of degradation just from the presence of millions of people in places they don't belong, places they don't live, places ranging from the mountains of Norway and the rainforests of the Amazon basin to the city of Barcelona, where there is a significant anti-tourist movement, and the ruins of Machu Picchu, which has had to make changes to try and deal with the high volume of traffic. Workers in the Louvre walked out in May of 2019. Why? Because too many of us want to see the Mona Lisa and other famous works housed there. The human beings who have to deal with all of that tourist traffic claimed that the Louvre has become unmanageable and that it is suffocating to work there. Many of us might think it would be wonderful to see the Mona Lisa, the Venus de Milo, or any of the other masterpieces in the Louvre. But Jesus never saw those works. Confucius never saw them. Buddha never saw them. The peacemaker never saw them. And yet they all experienced something priceless that they wouldn't exchange for even a thousand trips to the Louvre. Not only is travel not necessary for our happiness and our liberation, but there are many places in the world that seem to need a break from tourists. Perhaps the whole world does, or at least needs a reduction in tourism. But that suggestion sounds so threatening to so many aspects of our present culture that it almost unavoidably evokes reactivity in a wide variety of people. Even though I cannot know how things will turn out, it seems to me that travel in general is something we need to radically self-restrict before nature imposes her own radical restrictions upon us. Travel on the basis of self-help is often a symptom of our insanity, and it mainly perpetuates that insanity rather than dispelling it. And that's part of the self-help catastrophe. And worse yet, most ironically perhaps, is that the landscapes where we live might be crying out for a deeper care and attention, a deeper mindfulness and presence. And self-help that could turn us toward that might indeed be worth making at least a limited range trip to go and learn about. But most self-help doesn't really do that. It doesn't really turn us to rootedness in the land where we live. There are a variety of ways that we could get ourselves out 
of the self-help catastrophe, but long-range travel is probably not one of them. Even with this addendum, we have not arrived at a clear enough view of things. Each contemplation we post on wisdomloveandbeauty.org is part of a larger mandala, and we really do need to see at least the basic image of that mandala in order to enter into a deeper understanding. That's going to take a few more contemplations, to say the least. In the meantime, there are a lot of little insights available, and there are a lot of potentially transformative shifts in our thinking and in our way of being that we can make. And these can really help carry us forward in our lives and inspire us to touch a larger perspective. And I encourage you to rest with those, to let them sit and open up and allow them to begin to disrupt the very kind of consciousness that has an agenda, the doer inside of us, the tremendous fear and self-doubt, and even the deep sense of unworthiness that the culture cultivates in us. All of that can be disrupted through the practice of love wisdom, and we can find ethical ways forward in our lives. What do you think? Do we need to self-restrict plane travel and long-distance travel by car? Do we need to self-restrict almost all forms of travel? For instance, given the massive ecological intervention required to make batteries and new electric cars, is it the case that even our electric cars are now part of the problem? And yet another reason for needing to reorganize our culture. What kinds of self-help seem justified? What kinds of self-help seem capable of liberating us out of the pattern of insanity? If you have any reflections, comments, or suggestions, or questions about today's contemplation or the self-help catastrophe in general, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll address some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.